Chapter 3, last week, we started getting into this whole idea of justification by faith. And remember I said that means more than just um, the status of just as if I never sinned. I know sometimes people explain to be justified means just as if you never sinned. That's actually not true. To be justified means to be beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he requires from the heart. And in Christ, when we are connected to Christ through faith, we get that status if we are his children. That's what Paul was explaining in chapter 3. And it came as the, the kind of the contrast to how all men and women have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is God doesn't leave us in that place. He doesn't just wipe us off the faith of the earth like we would deserve. But instead, he sends his son to live and die in the place of sinners. Now, in chapter 4, Paul is going to continue to explain this, but it's pretty interesting what he does. In chapter 4, Paul, who is Jewish and is writing to um, largely Jewish church, but also Gentiles, it's a mixed church, but he's writing particularly to the Jews in this section. And he, and he basically, you know, imagine, put it, let me put it this way. Imagine if there was somebody from history that you revered, that you just thought was awesome, and then you go to a, a, a history class and maybe the professor says, well, actually, did you know all this, uh, and you're like, what? Like, if you were going to have your view of that person that you've really looked up to your whole life, if you were going to have your view turned upside down, it would take, I think, a lot of proof for you to change your perspective. At least I hope it would. And, and that's what Paul is doing here in chapter 4, because he says the gospel, the good news, that you can be beautiful in God's sight, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did, that's been the message of the Bible from the beginning. And Abraham is the best example I can point to of somebody who was justified by faith. Now that may not strike you as that kind of audacious, but in Paul's day, all of the rabbis thought that Abraham was the great example of how a good moral life and doing the right things is what made you beautiful in God's sight. And Paul says, no, no, go back and actually read what the Bible says, because Abraham is actually the best example of what faith is all about. And what's so important about the example of Abraham is it shows why nobody, no matter what religion or race or background you come from, nobody has an inside track to a relationship with God. Everyone is welcome. And in, see, in Paul's day, the Jews felt they had a special kind of insider privilege because they were the children of Abraham. And Paul says, actually, you've misunderstood the story. If you actually understood the story the right way, you'd understand that nobody has an inside track on a relationship with God, but everybody is welcome because of what Christ has done. 
So that's what we're going to talk about. Let me read Romans chapter 4, and then we're going to go through it and see how the Apostle Paul tries to to build this case. And, And it really is so important because what Paul's saying here, this is the message that turned the world upside down in the first couple centuries of Christianity. Because there was no religion that offered relationship with God that was secured by God's grace rather than what you did. It was absolutely extraordinary and it changed the world. And I hope that it would change your world if you really understand what the message Paul's talking about here tonight is. So let me pray, or let me read and then we'll, we'll pray and then we'll dig in. Romans chapter four, verse one. What shall we say? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, that is by what he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Then he quotes from the Old Testament and from Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, what he deserves. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. When he says, blessed, blessed means precious or gifted or not something that you deserve. It's something that's been bestowed upon you. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, that is the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, everybody else? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? You may not realize how important that is, but Paul's going to explain, and we're going to talk about that tonight. It was after. Sorry, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. So circumcision isn't what caused him to be in a relationship with God. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose of circumcision was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law that is, through obedience to the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, meaning Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions, sorry, trespasses, and raised for our justification. I know there's a lot of complicated thoughts there, but I'm going to explain it, trust me. And, uh, and we're going to see why Paul spends so much time talking about Abraham and what that has for us, how that can give us the kind of security that is life-changing. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you um, for scripture. We thank you that you have taught us truly in your word. And we pray now you'd help us to understand it and that the the life-giving message of Romans chapter 4 would pierce our hearts tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are still talking about justification by faith, how you can be beautiful in God's sight, right? And the way that Paul gets at this in chapter 4 is to consider Abraham. And, and he basically makes a couple points here to try to, to kind of advance his argument. The first is, why was Abraham saved? If you don't understand why was Abraham saved, you are going to distort the gospel, the good news. Why was Abraham saved? And then he says, it's also really important to remember when. What was the order of these things, like faith being credited to him as righteousness and circumcision? What was the order? When was he saved? And then how? What is it? How did it actually happen that this faith made him righteous in God's sight? And then what we need to talk about, what difference does that make? Okay, so the first eight verses are where he talks about why was Abraham saved? And the main point he's trying to make here is it was a gift, it was not earned. And, and he makes a, a big deal about this deal, this thing, that justification is through faith. And as I said, the irony of this and using Abraham to make this point is that the rabbis, the Jewish leaders, believe that the story of Abraham actually teaches us that you need to work to get God's smile, right? And I would say, actually, even today, a lot of people have heard sermons or Bible studies on Old Testament characters that still basically hold them up as examples that we need to follow. There's even an awful children's song, maybe some of you learned in, in vacation Bible school, called Dare to Be a Daniel. If you ever learned that song, I'm sorry, because it's awful and it's not the point at all. 
The point is not read the Old Testament and look at all these characters we're supposed to emulate. As a matter of fact, if you know much about the story of Abraham, he does some awful things. He basically pretends that his wife is his sister so that the king he's afraid of can take her and have his way with her and he will escape uh, you know, his own danger, right? Like, and he does it twice. So Abraham is not the guy you look up to and say, be like Abraham. Um, but in Paul's day, many people had missed the point of the Abraham story and were doing that very thing. So Paul says, look, Look at the scripture. Look what it actually says. And I'll just point something out here. It's a little phrase, but it's actually really important. Look at verse 2, or verse 3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know what's interesting? The way the New Testament writers interchange God says, Scripture says. In the mind of the New Testament writers, those are the same thing. Paul refers to this same passage over in his letter to the Galatians. And there he says, what does the, or says the scripture preach the gospel to Abraham when it said, and then it quotes God. And you're like, wait, if you go back in Genesis, God is the one who says that. And how can you say the gospel? Like, I didn't think that came till later. The point being, in, for the mind of the New Testament writers and for Jesus himself, Scripture says, it says, God says, are all the same thing. So before you come to the Bible with this kind of intense kind of skepticism, you need to understand that the Bible from beginning to end equates those things. God says, Scripture says. All right, so Paul as well is saying, look, if the Scripture, if I can show you what the Scripture says, that settles this, okay? You know, uh, it's been said for Jesus that he never quotes Scripture to begin an argument, only to end them. Every time Jesus quotes Scripture, it ends the argument. And that's the way Jesus models, the way we should think about the scriptures. And that's what Paul is doing here. All right, look at verse two. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. That little phrase, but not before God, means like basically like God, that's crazy talk. To think that you could have something you could boast about before God, like that's preposterous. This is like an argument Paul says, I don't even need to draw out the implications. If Abraham was justified by works, by what he did, he could look at other people and say, I'm better than you because I did this and you didn't. But that's ridiculous. Abraham couldn't have been justified by works because then he'd have something to boast about. He doesn't have anything to boast about. He has great reason to give thanks and praise and offer sacrifices to God. That shows you that Abraham himself understood that he did not earn the righteousness of God because he never boasts about it, and he can't. He can't. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's got nothing to boast about, but then scripture says that his faith was credited to him or some translations say, reckon to him as righteousness. This Greek word here is an important word, and it's actually an accounting term. So what it means is that basically 
um, <laughs> something is written into the, into the, it's like the balance sheet as a credit. That, that basically, Abraham's faith was not perfect. Abraham's faith was not something that God looked at and said, because you have this thing, this work, faith is not a work. Faith merely is credited as righteousness. Faith is not righteousness. It's not. But it's credited as righteousness. Why? Because of God's grace. And, and that's crucial to understand here. The reason this is so important is if you find impurity in your heart, or as I mentioned last week, if you find that your faith is full of holes, it doesn't matter with regard to what God thinks of you. Now, it does matter. God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be more and more transformed into the image of his son. He wants you to love God and to love your neighbor, right? It does matter in that sense, but it doesn't matter in the sense of what does God think about you? Because what's been written down in your logbook or your, your accounting book is beautiful, it's been written down. Your faith, which connects you to Jesus, means that what God thinks about Jesus, he thinks about you. So faith is credited. Faith isn't righteousness. It's credited. When you put your hope in God, then you get the status that Jesus earned. But you don't earn it by your faith. It doesn't change God's verdict over you what is going on in your heart because it's credited as righteousness. It doesn't have to be righteous. It doesn't have to be perfect. And this is such a crucial understand, thing to understand that Paul goes deeper into this. In verse four, he talks about, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he's saying, look, if this word credited, the word credited only makes sense as a gift word. It's not a work word, it's a gift word. And by the fact that the word that is there credited, it shows that it can't be works. Because if it works, it wouldn't be credited, it would be earned. Does that make sense? So he's saying, look, it can't be. Then he says in verse five, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Doesn't say that it is righteousness. So you're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're not saved by how strong your faith is. Faith connects you to God through Jesus. That's the key point here, right? Uh, the way I like to think about it is uh, this old hymn that we sing sometimes. Um, Horatius Bonar said it this way, so beautiful. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Which is to say, faith, and this is Tim Keller's word, I like this word, faith is a trust transfer. Faith doesn't make you beautiful in God's sight. Trust transfer means that you are now putting your hope in what God thinks about Jesus rather than what you yourself deserve. You're putting all your eggs in the basket of what God thinks about Jesus. You're saying, I've got nothing 
to offer to God that would ever impress him. But I'm going to put all of my eggs in the basket, all of my hope in Jesus. I'm going to transfer my trust from myself and what I've done or what I hope I could do, and I'm going to put it on Jesus. And that's why we can be beautiful in his sight, right? See, a Christian is is one whose sins are not credited to him, but instead the righteousness of Christ is credited to him. And and we're going to see later as Romans goes on, he's going to connect this explicitly to what Jesus did in living and dying, right? Right now, he's more talking about faith in God. Abraham, you understand, was saved by faith in the God who makes and keeps his promises, even if he didn't know that Jesus was the key to how that promise would be kept. Does that make sense? Abraham's faith is in the God who makes and keeps his promises, even if he doesn't understand Jesus is the, is the, the key to that provision. Okay? Just as people that put their hope in the sacrifices didn't put their hope in the sacrifices themselves, but in the God who is showing them there is a way to be beautiful in my sight, and it's going to be through my provision. And we know that they didn't put their hope in the sacrifice themselves. The, the book of Hebrews says that the whole point of the sacrifice is you have to do it over and over and over again. It's not actually working. But when you put your hope in Jesus one time, you're clean in his sight, right? All right. Again, Abraham did not have pure faith. If you read the story, you will find that. So a couple of applications before we move on. The, the, the gospel according to Romans is what I like to call this book, really. And the main point of the gospel according to Romans is that we are counted as righteous by putting our trust in God to dress us in the beauty and holiness of Jesus. And that changes everything. I was thinking about that, um, you know, that, that, that silly show. Well, maybe some of y'all really like this show. Say yes to the dress. And I was like, that's the heart of faith, you know, is, is Jesus says, let me dress you. It really is true. Let me dress you. Don't think that you can spin more beautiful clothes yourself. Don't, don't say, well, Jesus, just give me a little more time. Or if only circumstances worked out better, if only people didn't treat me so poorly, then I would be able to, to really live in a way that would impress you. Don't play that game. It's not true. Jesus dresses us in his beauty. And it doesn't matter the unbelief and the fear that's still in your heart. If you have trusted in Jesus, you're beautiful in his sight, okay? Now, Luther, Martin Luther, who, he said some crazy things, I know. Um, but, but he had a very helpful phrase. He talked about this as alien righteousness. I know that sounds like a strange term. He has nothing to do with outer space and, you know, all those kind of things, UFOs and whatnot. Now, what he means is we have the righteousness of another credited to our account. It's not our own personal righteousness or holiness that matters to God. It's this alien righteousness of another. And that's what the call to worship was about, right? That we have this inheritance, Peter says, that is kept in heaven for, for us. It's an amazing inheritance. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. What is it? It's your beauty. It's the righteousness of Christ. And you know what? 
It's kept in heaven where you can't get at it and screw it up. It's, it's not here. It's up there. Where is Jesus right now? Standing before the throne of God in perfect righteousness saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. Amen. Right? It's kept in heaven where we can't get at it to screw it up. Because Lord knows, if it was down here, we would screw it up. Right? Abraham, Abraham discovered this. Um, and it's not just some boring detail of doctrine, right? This is the message that changed the world. And it's the only message that can change you. I think of this guy, Charles Wesley. You know, the hymn writer Charles Wesley, you know some of his hymns, um, like And Can It Be and Oh for a Thousand Tongues and um, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Maybe you know that one. Um, you know, he actually went as a missionary to America before he was actually really converted. But he was very religious. As a matter of fact, he and his brother John and a guy named George Whitfield and some other friends of theirs, when they were at Oxford, they started a group, a campus ministry group called, get this, the Holy Club. They called it the Holy Club. And they were very serious about doing good things like visiting prisoners and, you know, do everything. But they also did things like sleep on the cold stone floor in winter without a blanket to prove God how zealous they were for his glory, right? But nothing brought them peace. Eventually, John and Charles Wesley come over to Georgia, to Fort Oglethorpe, and they are working as missionaries. It ends up being a disaster. Uh, for one reason, neither one of them are converted. They go back over to England kind of as it's been a disaster, and Charles Wesley gets sick. And he thinks he's on his deathbed, and this German Moravian missionary named Peter Bowler comes to visit Charles Wesley on his sickbed, which he thinks is his deathbed. And Peter Bowler asks Charles Wesley, do you hope to be saved? And Charles says, yes, I do. And Peter says, upon what basis? And Charles Wesley's answer was, well, upon my good endeavors, of course. Because I've met well, I've tried hard. Peter Bowler just shook his head and sadly walked out of the room. And Charles Wesley wrote in his journal, what? Would he rob me of my good endeavors? What else do I have? And it was a little later, he recovered, and he and his friends would basically sit around in their apartment. They would read out loud to each other Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians and his commentary on Romans. And he read the introduction to that commentary on Galatians, heard about this alien righteousness, and it transformed him. And he was converted, right? And, and, and he wrote 6,000 hymns, 9,000, if you count the ones that were never published. It's basically like a hymn a day, right? It unlocked his praise to understand that his good endeavors could get him nowhere. But there was an alien righteousness that was available by trusting in Christ. And this message has been at the center of the Reformation. It was at the center of the early church. It has been at the center of every real revival and lasting mission work. Salvation by grace alone that secures our relationship with God. All right, second point. I know that was long. When was Abraham saved? This one's shorter. 
the, the, the main point is, Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness before he was circumcised. And before the giving of the Mosaic law, right? Because Moses didn't even hear. Ten Commandments haven't been given yet, right? Therefore, Paul says, salvation is not just for the circumcised. This is huge. See, the Jews thought we have an inside track to God because we have circumcision. And Abraham is our father. And he's the father of all the circumcised. And Paul's like, hold on. I think you got the story a little mixed up. Because Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness Way back here, chapter 12, chapter 17 is when God comes and gives him circumcision as a sign. That's Paul's point here, okay? And what does that mean? That means that circumcision is not the key to having a relationship with God. That's good because, you know, most of you are not Jewish, right? And, and, and this is the, the key, Paul says, is God has never wanted people to think that salvation is restricted to just those who are circumcised. It's act, circumcision actually doesn't earn you any kind of special blessing or status with God. What it actually is, is a tangible sign that God means what he says when he makes his promise. In other words, um, circumcision is given after um, Abraham is doubting God's promise. And God says, look, I know I'm going to make a great nation of you. I've promised it. And I'm going to give you a cleansing ritual to the seed line, literally through cleansing the one through whom the seed line, the word semen and seed in Hebrew is the same. The descendants are going to come through you and I'm going to cleanse this part of you as a tangible reminder when you're struggling to believe that I mean what I say with my promise, well, you can look down and literally you can tell that something has been done to seal the promise because you have weak faith. This is how the sacraments always are, guys. They're given for our weak faith. It's been well said that the sacraments are the gospel preached in a picture because we need it. It's also helpful to know that the sacraments don't, earn, sacraments don't earn you any righteousness with God. They're given to you for weak faith. They're not a reward because you did something. Hey, look at me, I did this. It's not what the sacraments are about, all right? So when was Abraham saved? It's credited him as righteousness before circumcision. No one has an inside track to God. All are welcome. What does this mean? Well, it means that living by the law, living by basing your life upon what you've done, is incompatible with living by believing the promises. Living by believing in the promises is the Christian life. Living by looking to what you've done to serve God is not. And you can't actually, you, the goal is not to find some kind of balance. The goal is to live by faith. And as Paul says in Galatians 5, faith working itself out through love, right? It doesn't matter what we do, but faith is what drives it. Um, faith in the God who justifies the wicked. I love that. There's two phrases in this passage that you might almost pass by that I think are so helpful even for your prayers and even thinking about who God is. One is God in verse five is the one who justifies the ungodly. 
Let that sink in. Some translations say he's the one who is just and justifies the wicked. That's incredible. The, the other one I love is down in verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You want to know who God is? He's the one who justifies the ungodly. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist, right? So our faith is faith in the God who justifies the wicked and who makes the dead alive. Uh, One of the things that's so important, I think, when we think about faith here is that faith um, doesn't mean that you deny reality. It doesn't mean that you deny reality. Look, uh, Abraham knows that his body is as good as dead. He knows that his wife's womb is barren, but he does not by faith close his eyes to that reality. Faith is not closing your eyes to reality and difficulties. Faith is actually very realistic, but faith sees more, not less. Abraham sees, yes, I'm as good as dead because I'm 100 years old, but I also know God is the one who makes and keeps promises. So faith sees more, not less. I think a lot of people that are kind of around Christians sometimes get the sense that Christians just sort of kind of close their ears and shut their eyes to brokenness and reality. And it should never be that way. Like he doesn't, faith never asks you to say that's not true. It says that's true, but it's not all that's true. It's not all that's true, okay? Now, faith is, like I say, incompatible with works, right? And God, you see, wants us to live in the assurance of his love. This is verse 16. Why does the salvation depend on faith? He says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Do you understand? God wants us to live in the assurance of his love. And only salvation by grace can bring a salvation that is guaranteed. Because it has nothing to do with what you did. You didn't contribute to it. Therefore, even your unbelief doesn't undo it. God and the Son have agreed together to look to Jesus and his righteousness rather than you and your unbelief, right? Now, how was Abraham saved? How? Well, the promises of God. Look at verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. I love, I love to, to say this. Faith feeds on the promises of God. Therefore, we should study the scriptures to look for the promises of God, to look for the character of God revealed in the stories, in the Psalms, in the prophets, everything. Because faith feeds on the promises of God and the character of God. Like I said, faith is realistic. It doesn't deny obstacles, doesn't spiritualize them away, but it says there's more to be seen with the eyes of faith than just the obstacles, than just the trials, right? Let me conclude with this um, application. 
Law and grace are contrasted in this passage. But the Bible is going to say, particularly in Romans 7, the law is actually a good thing. I can't get into all of that. But there is a, a real contrast in this whole section between trusting in your obedience and your good works and trusting in God's promises, right? The law could make us wage earners. Grace makes us heirs. That's verse 13 and 14. The law brings wrath and fear. Grace brings faith. That's verse 15 and 16. The law leads to uncertainty. How do I know that I've really done enough? But grace brings, brings assurance, a guarantee. The law makes us fear God's power, but grace shows us it's our only hope. The law points us towards our own effort, but grace gives us hope in the God of impossible situations. The law leads to wavering and uncertainty, but grace, grace strengthens our faith. The law causes us to boast in what we've done. Grace brings glory to God. You see this little phrase? I love this one in verse 20. It says, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That, now that means, what does it mean to give glory to God? It means to be filled up with a beautiful picture of who he is, of how big he is, of how powerful he is. Faith grows by the character of God revealed and the promises of God that have been expressed. Fill your heart with the glory of God, who he is, what he's done, the promises that he's made, right? The law points us to our efforts, but grace points us to the one who was killed for our sins and risen for our justification. Justification is what you need in your good times to humble you and in your bad times to give you peace. And it brings boldness. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher. I think I mentioned him last week. I'm going to close with a quote of his about this boldness that justification, being beautiful in God's sight by faith, brings. He says, now the Lord Jesus does not merely ask God to overlook our sin or forget it. He stands before the Father, as it were, to say to God, I am here to just remind you that the law has been fulfilled, that the death has been died, they are free because I died with them. I say it with trembling, and yet I say it with confidence. God would be unjust if he did not forgive my sin. Christ has died for me. As 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Faithful and just to forgive us. If Jesus has died in your place and lived in your place, God would be unjust to not forgive you. God's acceptance of us, Lloyd-Jones says, is now a matter of justice. It is Jesus who enables God to be at one and the same time just and justifier of the ungodly. That is the hope that makes us confident, bold, but also humble because it wasn't anything that we did. We can't look down our nose at other people. As I've heard it said, you know, sharing the gospel is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, right? That's what this message of justification does.